Before we start, I'd like to share a statement from esteemed Christmas scholar and friend of the show, Benito Sereno. Benito? Although in America's commercially driven culture where Target is putting up Valentine's Day decorations on December 23rd, uh, it's common to think of Christmas as ending sometime during mm, your postprandial nap on December 25th. Uh, it is important, nevertheless, to remember that the 12 days of Christmas is not just a song. Christmas is a 12-day season, stretching from December 25th till January 5th, also known as Twelfth Night or Epiphany Eve. I mean, heck, by January 1st, when many people, Americans at least, are tossing their Christmas trees out on the curb, you're only just then receiving your maids of milking from your true love. You've got dozens more human-based gifts left to arrive. And even then, taking into consideration the epiphany season, beginnings of carnival, the hard out for the Christmas season doesn't hit until February 2nd, Candlemas, Groundhog Day. By that date, you you got you to gotta have your Christmas decorations taken down. All of this to say, early January, still Christmas. So show some grace to any Christmas-based content creators you know out there who may not have hit a December 25th deadline. Booyah, freaks. I ain't late. Benito said so. Do you even remember winter? Well, I just can't because It's a little too late for Christmas And a bit too late for us Well, peace on Earth Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. It is now finally time for everyone's absolutely favorite part of the Weird Christmas calendar, the Flash Fiction Contest results. This is the fourth, yes, fourth year in a row we've done this, and even though it's coming out literally on the last day of the year, it's without a doubt the best part of 2021. In all seriousness, though, I am very sorry I didn't get this out sooner. I'd hoped to have it done a week or so before Christmas, but my in-real-life December just went too many directions at once. That's also one reason why this is only the fifth show I've been able to get out this year. I've still got a ghost story and a couple other shows to throw out there, too, but like Benito said, the Christmas season doesn't end on Christmas Day, so why should my quote-unquote season... Thanks to everyone, though, for being patient with me, and thanks even to those who weren't so patient, especially the one person who submitted such a polite query that I feel like I should read it in full. Oh, and uh, this is a good opportunity to say that this year we've got a touch more swearing than usual in the stories. If that's an issue, if you got kids listening, you were warned. But that's important because that one very enthusiastic query went as follows. <clears throat> Bruh, did I win? Like, what the fuck? I'm assuming theirs was a parody submission based on some other stuff that went with it. So if you're listening, hopefully you meant to give me a chuckle because, yes, I chuckled at you. But this year I tried something different. Instead of just doing first and second place, I had enough money from Ko-Fi donations and from Patreon that I could offer more and bigger prizes. First, we upped the overall first place winner to $75, but I also split second place into three different categories, each with their own $50 prize. 
First was the stocking stuffer category, which was really just anything you could think of. It's the catch-all, just the same as pretty much every other year. The second category is weird cards, where your task was to submit a story based on one of the old postcards I post all year. I've always had a few people try something like that, but I thought it might encourage a few more folk to give it a shot and come up with something tied to those old freakish things. And it worked. As you'll see, I got some pretty good stuff. Then the third category came from Benito in a chat we were having over hot cocoa way back in July, or, or maybe it was on Twitter in September, I don't know. He suddenly had an idea for a story inspired by Shakespeare and M.R. James, the master of the Victorian Christmas ghost story. Anyway, here's how he put it. So, in Shakespeare's The Winner's Tale, the young prince starts telling a story full of goblins and spirits, as he says is best for winter. However, he only gets one line in. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. Before he's interrupted, and he never gets to finish. M.R. James wrote a story called There Was a Man Dwelt by a Churchyard, essentially writing what he thought the prince's story might be. It's pretty good, about a guy who digs up a witch's grave to rob her. Anyway, I was like, hmm, what if I also use that line as a prompt? And then I was like, what if a lot of people use that line as a prompt? So anyway, at first I thought it'd be fun to make that the only way to enter the story this year, but I knew it'd probably cut down a lot of alternative weirdness, so I made it just one category, the third category. By the way, you may have caught on by now that I have a serious kind of bro crush on Minito. It's that sexy Christmas brain of his. Mm. So anyway, that's more fun than just having one second place. Um, and the overall winner could come from any category. Vast majority of the stories were stocking stuffers, of course, which makes sense. But I think you'll really like what the other two made. Um, I also pay each honorable mention $5. So that way, if they're working for a professional portfolio or trying to get into a writing organization, this can go down as a paid publication. I hope I can eventually get that number up to pro rates, which I think would be around 17-ish dollars for 350 words, according to the um, Science Fiction Writers of America standards. $5 is technically a semi-pro rate, but you really don't care <laughs> unless you're a professional writer. Point is, eventually, I want this contest to be seen as a legitimate, paid, professional, annual publication, which might not be a contest, but where everyone gets paid substantially. And the way to do that is money. So again... Kofi.com slash weird Christmas. That's ko-fi.com slash weird Christmas if you're in the mood to tip me in increments of $3. And I think they made that more variable now. I gotta gotta go check. Or you can check out my Patreon page for other goodies throughout the year. All the money I've made through these sites has gone back into the contest this year, minus my hosting fees. But otherwise, the amount and the number of prizes I can give away is determined solely by that money that I make. So thank you, thank you to everyone who's donated because you guys are the ones literally making this contest bigger and better each year. And speaking of bigger, there was some steep competition, both in quality and quantity. I ended up with around 450 submissions, which is incredible. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who took the time to write something. I'm obviously not a pro outlet yet, and let's be honest, Weird Christmas isn't really a stepping stone to uh, best-selling fame and fortune, but I'm so gratified that that many people found the idea fun and engaging enough to spend their time, energy, imagination on coming up with something to share with all of us. The reason I always say this is my favorite part of the whole Weird Christmas thing isn't just because I love the great stories that end up on the show, but because I actually get to see so many wonderful things that other people create and get excited about. I mean, I'm usually the one sending random cards out into the wild or blabbing into a microphone. But with this one, everyone sends stuff to me. So even if you didn't make it on the show, I guarantee you that I dearly loved reading your stories. 
And I mean that. I look forward to reading all these stories as they come in every year. They're the only email notifications I use on my phone. (laughs) So even if I didn't pick your story, I want you to know that you had at least one reader who enjoyed your effort and wants to say thank you. So whatever you wrote, it was about a topic and a mood that's obviously dear to my heart. And I spent time with it, reread it, thought about it, and hopefully took as much care in enjoying it as you did writing it. So I hope every one of you will write another one next year, truly. Even if that means I get more than 450 next year. So anyway, to the stories on the show. want to be clear about one thing. This is a weird kind of contest. I do not claim that the winners or the honorable mentions are actually the best of the 450 stories I got by some objective criteria of good writing. I mean, obviously, I think they're among the best, but it's not that kind of judgmental contest. Instead, what I'm looking for are stories that strike a chord of weirdness in what may be a very idiosyncratic way. What's weird to one isn't weird to everyone. I mean, my wife and a bunch of friends read the final group of around 50 or so with me every year. And there's a huge variety of opinions about which to include. So in the end, though, I'm looking for pieces that scratch that itch I have for making the familiar and the sentimental into something that's a mix of funny and disturbing and oddly unexpected, while also still somehow being recognizably Christmassy. But I want to be absolutely clear that my choices may not be everyone's choices, and I'm not saying they should be. So in fact, every year, Mrs. Kringle looks at my decisions and gets... I know at least slightly annoyed, but I included some of the ones that she crossed out with big red meh on her copy. But like I said, in the end, weird is going to be pretty subjective as far as a criterion goes. And since I'm the one making this list and checking it twice, that's just how it is. If Benito or Mrs. Kringle or anyone else was putting the show together, I'm pretty sure the lineup and winners would be very different. That's all a long-winded way of saying if I didn't choose your story to win or didn't put it on the show, it doesn't at all mean I think your piece was bad. I hope everyone submits their story somewhere else and finds some readers for whom your weird is simpatico with their weird. And with that, we can finally get to the good stuff. As usual, I'll keep the winners for the end and start with the honorable mentions. And that's another reason I don't like the contest idea, that suggestion that these are all somehow lesser. Um, That's bunk. We're all simply tools of convention, or maybe it's all just my latent socialism poking through, whatever. Anyway, let's get to the stories. Let's start with a story inspired by a weird card. Imagine, if you will, a... Let's call it a teapot, a large teapot. It's tastefully decorated in green or blue, turquoise-ish and creamy white, kind of like a sort of Delft-ish theme, but you don't really pay much attention to the detailed filigree because sticking out of the top of the teapot is the upper torso, shoulders, arms, and head of a toddler. He's dressed in old-timey clothes, but again, you're not really paying attention to his clothes because his face is just a mess. He's sad. Maybe he's crying, but from his expression and the shape of his mouth, it's more like he's doing that horrible whine cry that you hear somewhere at the base of your neck rather than in your ears. It's horrific. It makes you want to run and hide. But in one flaccid, dangling hand, he's holding a note that says, A Christmas greeting with love. That's a real Victorian Christmas card. I share it a lot every year because it's awesome. Awful, but awesome. Head over to weirdchristmas.com to see it, where you can also read all the full text of all these stories and get author bios, etc. But for now, just know it's there, waiting for you, ready for you, 
about to pounce. Just like our first story by a writer who also had a story on my very first contest show. Please enjoy The Second Coming by Michelle Cristoforo. Oh, and almost all the authors agreed to read their own stories this year, with just a couple exceptions I'll mention along the way. When the child appeared from nowhere in an antique tea urn, dressed as an Edwardian, or possibly a Victorian, Vera was convinced he was the second coming. Left on our doorstep Christmas morning. No explanation, but a card that says a Christmas greeting with love. What else could it be? God is love. Bob was unconvinced. If this really were Jesus 2.0, surely he would look a lot less like an infant Alan Rickman and would not have a petulant expression that only a mother could love. Though, judging by the doorstep thing, it seems not even a mother could manage it. We should take it to the police station, he said. It's probably microchipped. Bob and Vera had never been blessed with children of their own. Only dogs. He's not an it, Bob. He's a he. A little boy, like the baby Jesus himself. And roughly half the world's infants, thought Bob. Maybe the child would cheer up if he ate something. However, when Vera raised a glass of milk to his lips, his face turned even surlier, like he'd caught Harry Potter giving Draco a wedgie. The liquid entered his open mouth and dribbled straight out again, as used to happen with his sister's dolls. When he never played with them, of of course he didn't. Bob hoped random wise blokes would turn up with gifts. Gold would be great, though maybe swap the weird smellies for season tickets to United and an 85-inch flat-screen TV. But what was he thinking? The child clearly was not the baby Jesus. If he really were part of the holy crudinity, he would surely come detachable from his urn. For despite their efforts, he and Vera could not remove him. They tried olive oil, water-based lubricants, never you mind, even a splash of WD-40 before they realised the container was in fact part of the boy. No deity, even one that turned you into salt or plotted your ingestion by whale, would produce a son like that. Yes, Bob was unconvinced. Truly, madly, deeply unconvinced until the chamber pot donkey arrived. Please do check out the show notes over at weirdchristmas.com. I've asked all the writers to send in a short biographical note primarily so that if you like their story, you can hunt down other stuff that they've written. You can also learn little tidbits like how Michelle is now buddies with some other folk who wrote stories for that first show. I've helped people make friends and form personal lasting bonds that will sustain them for lifetimes. Man, I am so giving. I do so much good in this world. I make hearts flower and flourish. I am overdoing it, sorry. This next story is by a name that's hopefully familiar to you if you follow me on Twitter, or if you're a fan of the show Ghost Hunters. Dustin Perry was on the original Ghost Hunters and Ghost Hunters International, but nowadays he's focusing more on motivational speaking and lucky for us writing. Now I have to be honest here, I did not pick his story for the show because he always goes above and beyond telling his tens of thousands of followers to check out my cards or talking about how awesome I am at podcasts and how he's the biggest verified Twitter user to retweet my stuff and impress my kids and my son's girlfriend when they saw me DMing him on Twitter one night so that now I'm the cool dad. No, no, in all honesty, I take the names off the stories when I have other people read through them and this story still obviously rose to the top. 
So I hope you'll enjoy seeing a bit of Krampus's softer side with Married to Christmas by Dustin Perry. A penny for your thoughts. 50 bucks for your safe word. Needless to say, she had my attention. A tall, blonde-haired angel, just like atop the tree, with deep blue eyes that would rival the North Pole sky at twilight time. Listen, lady, I'd love to, but my heart's not into it. Good thing your heart isn't what I'm after. I just want to jingle your bells, you great furry beast. (laughs) I get it. I'm tall, dark, and hairy. I carry around a whip, a bunch of chains, and I'm constantly wagging my tongue. I look like a walking good time. But move along, sister. I'm married to my work. To Christmas. Come on now, Krampus. Let's go upstairs. This party's dead anyway. She wasn't wrong. The holiday singles party that Mrs. Close threw every year for those of us in the Lonely Hearts Club was... uh, She meant well, but it was a disaster. This year especially. I was fresh off a breakup and there wasn't enough eggnog to drown my sorrows. I told the angel my story. I was at the North Pole one day and my eyes came across a mousy-looking elf girl with brown eyes so soft they looked like reindeer fur. She wore a cherry-red dress of crushed velvet with snow-white trim. Standard issue for the girls from Mrs. C. But hers covered a sugar plum so firm you could have bounced a wooden nickel off it. She wore yellow rain boots all the time because she said it always felt like rain in her heart. A melancholy misfit hiding behind a slightly crooked smile that made her even more endearing. Everything happened so fast, the thoughts racing in my head could barely keep pace with the passion burning in my heart. Then what? asked Angel. Huh? Then what happened? You stopped talking and gazed off like you were lost in a snow globe. Uh, desire followed by disaster. Sometimes I still see her face in freshly fallen snow. We sat quiet for a bit. Peppermint, I said. Is that her name? Nah, it's my safe word. Complaining about capitalism and materialism is as traditional as anything else at Christmas. Scrooge bitches about it. Charlie Brown moans in his Charlie Browniest way. Today, though, the challenge is to find the real lifeblood of Christmas, even while all the talk of buying and spending and consuming is all around. But I think Thomas Lawrence has his finger on that pulse with red nose. I'll tell you why we don't rent out a Rudolph anymore. Actually, first of all, have you heard of selective breeding? Yes, it's the obscene hobby that transformed the mighty wolf into the handbag chihuahua. My job is to breed reindeer. It's easy, leave them to it. There's no simpler task than producing a fleet of comets and blitzens et al. But the mall Santas and the travelling shows, they wanted a Rudolph. And fair enough. What festive fun is there in a queue of plain reindeer? You want the protagonist. The rest might have names but we all know they're just extras. Some rival breeders set to work on their own Rudolphs, slapped a bit of lead paint on the snout, never convinced anybody. I knew that some effort was required. I did the research, I consulted a few back alley geneticists, and after a decade, 
of turning wolves into chihuahuas, I had my authentic Rudolph. It was worth the time investment. The painted competition vanished in his glare. Through intensive breeding, I'd rerouted a huge tangle of capillaries and veins through the skull and thinned the skin at the nostrils, resulting in a bright, blood-red nose that shone when the light hit it. My first customer, a particularly shrewd mall Santa, picked him up December 1st. He was blown away. He drew in an unprecedented crowd. I stood by proud. Unfortunately, as with chihuahuas, there are problems that arise in the selectively bred. My Rudolph was becoming quite stressed with the attention. Usually, this is fine. You can't sense Dasher's heart rate from the outside. But Rudolph's nose was getting brighter, swelling. The blood rushed into that thick web of vessels in his face, redder and redder, bigger and bigger. I realised what was about to happen just a second before it did. The children at the front bore the worst of it. I received a small spattering to my lapels. It cost me thousands to buy the silence of everybody present. Thankfully, Santa didn't actually need his suit dry cleaning. It was the exact same shade of red. I will say, I get a lot of stories that make the whole war on Christmas literal in one way or another. And by this point, I must have seen about a hundred versions of wars in the North Pole. So I love it when someone takes that premise and goes in a direction I just wasn't really expecting. And that's what we get in this story. Saving Centerland by J.J. Makshevsky. They threw the first snowball at midnight. Donner stood at the cave mouth listening. Fresh snow powdered his antlers like icing sugar, but he remained still. They had waited all year for this moment. The moment. And he would not fail them. Come on, Vix, he thought, staring up at the swirling snow clouds. The younglings huddled together behind him. Fawns, elves, gingerkin, those who were most vulnerable, who shouldn't have to endure the horrors of Sinterland. They were the future. If they escaped, they might just save Christmas. A swath of bright green light illuminated the sky. The signal, Donner breathed. Everyone, now, quickly! A stampede of tiny feet. Two by two, they raced toward Peppermint Lake, quiet as deer mice. Donner tallied them, ensuring none were left behind, then brought up the rear. He knew Dancer waited a mile ahead, and Prancer stood guard by the portal, but he would see them through. He had to. For Nick. A faint gallop from the east. He turned his head, slowing to a trot as Comet swept up beside him. The white scar over his right eye glistened in the moonlight. Well done, Donner commended, shouldering his brother affectionately. That was a damn good shot. It was all Vixen, Comet replied. Where is she? Comet's good eye averted his own. She fell, he croaked, bowing his magnificent head. Donner skidded to a halt. No, he murmured. No, no, was it? The red terror, Comet nodded. Rudolph. Donner was still haunted by the memory of those cruel black antlers skewering Mrs. Claus like a shish kebab. And Nick, poor Nick. Anger rose in Donner's chest, a hot fury fierce enough to melt ice. Ahead he saw Dancer's towering form. The younglings had reached her. On, Comet, Donner commanded. Join them. Find Nick and bring him home. 
but Comet turned back toward Sinterland. No, Donner, let's take that bastard down together. Donner smiled grimly. Together. As one, they dashed through the forest, their hooves rumbling the dreaded drumbeat of war. For Nick, Donner cried, spying that abominable red nose. And for Sinterland. The next story is another one inspired by a weird card. And it's a weird one indeed, one where the weird comes both from not knowing what, if anything, the image has to do with Christmas, and also with not knowing really what you're looking at. You can see it over at weirdchristmas.com, but to describe it, picture a giant red moth with wings spread and flying toward a crescent moon. It's so high you can't see any ground below, just the moon, clouds, some stars strangely in a single line to the right. And riding on the back of the moth is a green grasshopper blowing a horn. The caption says, Fairy Queen's Messenger, to wish you a Merry Christmas. Jens Heber decided to explore this inexplicable world in his story, The Messenger. He also tells me it was recorded outside in Malaysia where he teaches, and the little snippets of birdsong you can hear in the background actually work perfectly for this one. The fairy queen has sent me with the news to blow my trumpet to the skies, to share her bubbling glee with the shining stellar saints that grace the nighttime heavens above. So enraptured is the fairy mother that she forgot I cannot fly so high. Hopper legs and sleek green wings are not enough to show my fealty. But the virgin queen has eyes for only one, the monstrous beast she thinks her child. And now my life is forfeit when I cannot fulfill my oath. But lo, what winged wonder comes, a beacon in my darkest night. There she shimmers with her crimson hue, a lovely moth of life. She alights before me on the grass, offer service of her flight, and so together with the wind we will unroll the royal bed. Horn and claw and keenly perching, our flight transforms the night to glory. Far beyond the toils of fay, above the crawling sins of hordes, we glide together past the clouds and to the starry throng on high. They mass their glowing might in aura and receive us proud and haughty. Fair and lustrous lords and ladies, rings my voice about the realm. The fairy queen would bid you welcome and attend to the joyous feast. For unto her is born a child, a messiah from an older time. So come with gifts and show your wonder that she may usher in her promised golden age. We wait not to hear their answer, but instead fly far from thence. My message is cast out to the stars. I was free to flee the chaos about to commence. For the queen enamored with her cuckoo's brood would not know the threaded post, and the stars with holy wrath would seek to forestall the spreading doom. We left that place, moth and grasshopper free. Why help such a humble messenger as me? With voice so soft she answers me. This world of stars and monsters, Fay, is not for such as lowly we. I would save you from their strife and together forge a quiet beauty. Our first story from the There Was a Man Dwelt by a Churchyard category has another first too. It's the first time I've included a piece in verse. Unless you count the last one, which could well have been. It just didn't present it that way when you submitted it. 
I've always gotten poetic submissions every year, but I'm a bit pickier about poems because they they have to do everything the stories do and be easy to digest on the podcast. That's quite a pretty complicated recipe. But luckily, Gary Ballard seems to be quite a competent chef who is able to whip up this scrumptious little tale called A Christmas Burial. And I decided to read this one myself. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard, where bodies were buried by the ounce. Corpulence carried a heavy price in this sleepy village I can't pronounce. A grieving wife came to ask the man, as the churchyard's undertaker, for a seasonal discount burial for her husband, the portly baker. He'd gotten fat on Christmas pudding, she said with pleading tone, and with mince pies by the dozen ballooned to twenty stone, On my meager widow's pension, your prices are alarming. Surely there's a cheaper deal? Cremation? Or embalming? The undertaker shook his head, accompanied by a frown. I charge for flesh on the bone. I bury six feet down. If you want to save some pennies, we can bury them in part. Happy to do the butchering, remove the brain and heart. But what to do with the rest of him? Gerald was such a lovely man. Can chop him up straightforwardly, put him in the van. I'll take him to the gristle mill, grind him to a paste. Can profit from your husband's corpse. None will go to waste. There's profit in such horror? The wife was quite excited. We can use the funds for the wake. You are, of course, invited. There'll be undertones in the body's flesh of the puddings and the pies. A perfect mince for Christmas. We can pickle both his eyes. I presume it's all quite legal to feast upon the dead. A pate made from Gerald may work on wholemeal bread. He'd be lovely on a cracker, said the undertaker with a wink. And we can liquidize his bladder, make a splendid festive drink. Now the funeral was well attended, had a special Noel theme, and the food served at Gerald's wake went down like a dream. The Stollen was spectacular, but the mince pies were the star, full of Gerald goodness, washed down with advocar. The widow raised a solemn toast before the mourners ate their human jellies, and satisfied, they all went home, Gerald in their hearts and in their bellies. I actually took more than one poem this year. In fact, I took three, all different. So if that last one was a little story in verse, the next one is kind of a different take on a very familiar poem from this time of year. So most people know that A Visit from St. Nicholas, which most people call to as the night before Christmas, is usually said to be written by Clement Clark Moore. But D.P. Blanchard imagines another Christmas poem he wrote in a very different mixture. Here's The Spirits of Christmas. Not all Christmas stories have a happy ending, Sterling. You recall that other poem written by your Uncle Clement? "'Twas Christmas Eve, all bright and merry, when she the wine and I the sherry, repaired to some sequestered nook, released the gin, and then partook. We danced until the early hours, delighting in our youthful powers. Upon liquid velvet wings we flew, returned to earth, then soared anew. But come the morn, all grey and bleak, with tongues too thick, 
and eyes too weak. We knelt penitent and overblown before a gleaming pink and porcelain throne. The surplus of our yuletide flight soon hurled and flushed fair out of sight. Yet through the swish and swirl and rue, midst that vile and evil-smelling stew, all fraught with dread, our guts inflamed, for agonies as yet unnamed, a notion like a rose in bloom, sweet Circe's from this trackless gloom. Perhaps to a best we set our eyes, pawn some less Bacchanalian prize, bid spirits seek another host, to raise a glass and offer toast, while others revel Christmas Day, with aching skulls will slink away, to lie abed whilst counting sheep. What kinder death than that of sleep? Swore he'd never touch another drop. Course, everyone says that. Now, go on and enjoy yourself, my boy. Tis Christmas Eve, after all. Just remember, you have bell-ringing duties at church in the morning. The title of this next story sounds like a poem to me, but it's uh, not. I think parents of tweens and teens will really appreciate this one, as the dad of a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old know I did, though I never went quite this far. Still, here's Eleanor Luke imagining a rather desperate way to make Christmas magical again with a lock of hair, a baby tooth, a toenail. I stop outside the shop and wonder if I've got the right address. I glance at the scrap of paper Ben's teacher gave me, the healer. Yep, this is it. Weird he should have chosen a shoe repair shop as a front. The guy at the till is short. He looks me up and down, well, more up than down. I'm here to see a man about a snow globe, I say. Password? I clear my throat. Jolly fucking Holly. He nods and points to a back room. I notice his ears are slightly pointed. I step inside. Snowflakes flutter before me. The scent of pinewood, gingerbread and whiskey caresses me like a lover's hand. Like the best orgasm, a booming voice says. A Christmas orgasm, I sigh. He's sitting on a red velvet sofa. Behind him are shelves full of snow globes covering every inch of the wall. You're really his brother? Indeed. Derek Ramsbottom, younger brother of St Nicholas. He strokes his white beard. The likeness is undeniable. I'm not sure where to begin. Look, Helen, you know my name? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He damn well knows your name. He laughs and his belly trembles. Now, which kid is being a little shit? Ben, he's just turned ten. It's like an alien took over his body. He doesn't believe in Christmas anymore. He's sucking the joy out of it for all of us. He nods. Did you bring the gear? I hand him an envelope. A lock of hair, a baby tooth, a toenail. Good. Let me assure you it's painless. And how do you fit him in the snow globe? He rubs his shiny red nose. Magic. And the clone? The swap is simultaneous. You might not even notice a difference at first. But Ben too will believe in Santa. We throw in the Tooth Fairy and Easter Bunny too. Co-marketing's all the rage. And we get him back at 18? Sure, he says and hands me a contract. If you still want him. I sign on the dotted line.
If you've listened to my other shows or if you're just into Christmas history in general, you know that the holidays are always morphing into others and absorbing different traditions. Halloween and Christmas are kind of like two brothers born of solstice traditions. Saints Days and Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day all kind of vie for prominence in different parts of the world. It's a mess. But it's that mess that John Wolfe tackles in this story, The Last Holiday, read by my friend Lisa. The Harvest King sat in his wicker throne, head bowed, rattling with dry leaves and sighing white smoke. The fire inside his orange head dwindled. The feasting hall was empty as the grave. A few emerald snakes rested atop the scarred Thanksgiving table in beds of clover. Barefoot cherubs, the ones lucky enough to escape, ran across the rooftop. They would fight to the last arrow in their quivers. The floor of the keep trembled. The snakes slithered away to join the sheltering white rabbits. In their panic, they left behind handfuls of jelly beans for an offering. The Harvest King plucked up one between his twig fingers and popped it into his carved mouth. The Harvest King stood on spindly wooden legs, grasped his scythe, and marched to the balcony overlooking his dusky kingdom. A green and red protean horror of false cheer slithered over the hills in a sticky, saccharine mass. It threw back his malformed head and bellowed, Holly, jolly. The Minutemen made ready, and glaring red rockets sailed over the ramparts. The thing's candy shell sizzled and cracked on impact. Cheers rose from the keep's walls, but the monstrous blob kept coming, always consuming, turning everything into a winter wonderland. A strange calm came over the Harvest King. This was the end, but that was all right. The Harvest King refused to feel fear. Fear, mischief, and the chill winds of autumn were his to command. He leapt over the walls and charged to meet his old friend head on. In his wake, pumpkin vines sprang up from the ground, thick and sturdy as the pillars of an ancient temple. At first he charged alone, but when the Harvest King looked to his left, the dog days of August loped beside him with barred teeth and hot breath. To his right, an army of mothers robbed of their day and all the other remaining holidays who refused to give up the good fight brought up the rear. The blob ran down the hill to meet them with a monstrous roar. As one, they answered, Trick or treat! Christmas can be a cozy time. It's supposed to be a family time, I think. But there are some less conventional ways to mix up cozy and family. J.D. Wilson shows one of those in his story, The Christmas Room. And by the way, while this may not be a murder story, something about this tale definitely fits the vibe of the Christmas murder ballads I talked about earlier this year. The scent of the freshly cut tree filled the old house. The old man sat in front of the fire with his feet up, the well-worn book resting in his lap. Outside, a blanket of new snow glistened in the twilight. The woods surrounding the cottage were silent. It had happened so long ago, back when he was a much younger man. His wife and their five children, 
they had left home and taken the shortcut. The three-mile footpath to Alton's store was often used by the reclusive family. On Christmas Eve, 1928, they had left the small house in the woods. They would never return home. The storm was one for the ages. Thirteen inches of snow in two hours. The temperature dropped to minus ten degrees. It was a storm that Haverford, Maine, had not seen for decades. The McAllen children and their mother all perished on that horrible night. The search party would not find them for two days. The winter was relentless and dragged on into spring with cold temperatures and record snowfalls. The funerals were delayed. The winter would not allow grieving. Not yet. The snow stayed deep on the ground until early April. Only then would he take care of them. The McAllen Cemetery was on the hill behind the old house. He had prepared everything. He would not allow an outsider such involvement in the arrangements of his dear wife or children. They would all be together now. Together, but not in the cold ground, and he would see them every year on that most horrid anniversary. On Christmas Eve. Now, tonight, he arose and slid the rug aside. The hatch in the floor was raised. He descended the steps into the cold cellar, carrying the book under one arm. The night before Christmas. They were all arranged around the small table. The skin on their faces was drawn and tight. The children sat with their withered, tiny hands resting on the dusty table. He lit the kerosene lantern and began reading the book that his children so loved. It was Christmas Eve. We already had one war in the North Pole story, but what I haven't seen as many of are totalitarian Christmas stories. That's probably a good thing, but it's also why this next one stood out. We'll go a bit darker here, but I still hope you'll enjoy It's the Most Dreadful Time of the Year by Paul Luthwaite. Red-clad soldiers of the feared Zanta Brigade barged into our house late on Nightmas Eve. They stamped snow from their black boots onto our threadbare carpet and shook their beards free of icicles, faces barely visible behind facial hair. They were as arrogant as I remembered. Ten years ago, they'd arrested my parents and sent them to a gulag at the North Pole. Their commander, rotund with layers of warm clothing and body armour, sauntered toward me, his snub-nosed ho-ho gun, so-called because of the sound it makes, hung loose in one gloved hand. I wrapped a protective arm around my two young children. You know why we are here, woman, he boomed. I bowed my head and recited the state-endorsed response. Joy to the world, old neck has come, let earth receive her king. Good, he replied, at least you know your catechism. Now fetch the gift for your lord. I left my children cowering in front of the commander and his men and picked up a parcel from beneath our mandatory tree of jingles. I wrapped it carefully the previous evening, green and red striped paper topped with a crimson satin bow. The paper alone cost me three months' wage. I presented it to the commander, head lord. 
The commander sniffed the box and then shook it. Something rattled inside. Involuntarily, I took a step back, breathing heavily. He didn't notice my disquiet, intrigued as he was by the potential contents. It's quite heavy. What is it? No, don't answer that. Surprises are good. He slung his gun over his shoulder and in the despised tradition, indicating acceptance of an offering, placed his hands on his hips and guffawed. They left soon afterward. The rain DR assault craft ascended silently into the night sky, off to terrorise more poor souls. Children, we have to leave, I said. Grab your things. Friends are waiting. I wondered if my present would actually reach old Nick, or if the Xantas would dare their master's wrath and tear it open first. Either way, it wouldn't do to tarry. Our last poem is one I really encourage you to go read online at weirdchristmas.com. It's a sonnet. And part of the real fun of sonnets is seeing how the poet makes a really formal structure work for whatever they're writing about. And that takes rereading. Have I mentioned before that my day job, I'm teaching English all the time. Forcing people to read poems slowly is just part of what I do. But here's a recap from high school English class. A sonnet is a 14-line poem. There are all different kinds of rhyme schemes you can use, where the difference is just which lines rhyme with which. Petrarchan, Shakespearean, Spenserian, my personal favorite. And then usually they're split into eight lines of a problem or a question or a situation and a six-line response to that. That's the high school definition. But thinking through all that is easier when you're looking rather than listening. At least for me it is, but whatever. I'm a pedant at heart, so sorry. Even if you don't go there... This one's still just fun. So here is Kate Sherrod with How Santa Got Schooled. The elves had unionized in early spring, so Santa brought in scabs when came the vote to strike. The new guys seemed to build good things, and quickly too. St. Nick had taken note and had his lawyer draft up contracts for retaining them for good. Then Christmas came, and he delivered new toys by the score. By New Year's, though... All parents cursed his name. All of the much-beloved brand-new toys, in those who had no voice capacity, were whispering at night to girls and boys about the need for solidarity. The scabs had been his elf force all along. They've health care now, and pensions, union strong. I've said before that I think science fiction is sometimes the hardest to write for this contest, so when I get a story that can somehow mix the magic of Christmas with some space and tech and science, and even throw in some dark humor, I'm sold. John Pasadente did a great job with his science fiction piece, Oh Holy Night. Holy is spelled H-O-L-E-Y. And his friend Jasmine Arch also did a wonderful job narrating it. Time Gets Weird this close to the collapse are. Tell the truth, I had no idea it was Christmas already. But the mail drone brought cards and gifts, so it must be. I cried over them a while. It gets lonely here, just me and the computers. Then I wrote back season's greetings of my own. No idea when they'll reach home, but what the hell, I sent them. Afterward, it was back to the data and try to put thoughts of hearth and family aside. The equipment hummed and buzzed and smelled like thunderstorms. I flipped through the library for something to fall asleep to. Then the damnedest thing happened. Thumps on the outer hull. A sleigh. Reindeer. 
I'm not making this up. I only wish I were. Research stations on tiny asteroids balanced on the edges of excessively steep gravity wells don't have chimneys. He came in through the air vent. I don't know how. The system is sealed. That vent is smaller than my hand, and he wasn't thin. Never mind that there's nothing but hard vacuum outside, plus enough x-rays to fry a moose. All a hallucination, right? A dream? Nope. I heard him chuckle, smelled the pipe smoke, felt the vibrations of his boots on the deck. He didn't say a word, just winked at me with a sly smile and spread gifts and decorations around. Then he tapped the side of his nose with one finger and rose into the vent like smoke. Gone. Just like that. I ran to the viewport and opened the shutter. The reindeer launched him and the sleigh with a mighty kick and a cloud of dust. Heading for home, I suppose. I guess I should be happy. I have snacks, toys, a few pictures of my nephews, and I would be, except his takeoff gave me one extra gift. A kick of momentum in the direction of the event horizon. The station doesn't have an escape pod. In about an hour, tidal stresses are going to stretch Asteroid Station and me into a ribbon. I hope it's a pretty one. Our next story is another There Was a Man Dwelt by a Churchyard. Now, a lot of these turned out to be ghost stories, which absolutely makes sense since that's exactly what the prompt said that James turned Shakespeare's line into. But what I liked about this next one was the kind of weird way it's somewhere between a monster and a ghost story. It's hard to explain, but I guess I shouldn't explain it. I should just let you hear it. So here's The Use Embrace by Jenny Rowe. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard, cradled within a thick-trunked yew. Dawn flattering roused him as berry-smitten birds searched for red treasures, and at night the wind sang lullabies across the wrinkled bark. The trunk warmed his winter shivers, and the quiver of tiny needles cooled his summer brow. His had been an angry life, berating unworthy congregations, belittling the close-fisted poor, sending the fear of God through the wretched meek. His red-edged eyes brimmed with spite, his plump cheeks swelled with pride, the tendons in his neck strained to keep his self-righteous head upon its shoulders. When Christmas approached his forty-sixth year, he spurned its advances. Arms for the poor were gathered, but he couldn't bear to look upon the grimy faces that clamoured for such meagre offerings. At the churchyard gate that Christmas Eve, he spied a young boy clipping a branch from the great yew's coat. Hi, hi, what devil's work is here? The boy cowered, the branch really no more than a twig in his frost-touched fingers. Begging your pardon, sir, it is a gift for my mother to hang at the hearth. I have nothing else to offer. Grabbing the branch, the man dashed the boy to the ground. There, that'll teach you to steal from the Lord. But as he raised his fist to beat the unresponsive child, he felt a sharp pain in his palm. Turning, he found the foliage had enveloped his hand, and now his arm itself sprouted needles. In confusion, he plucked the leaflets from his skin, but in their place beads of blood formed bright red berries. When at last the boy revived, 
he found himself alone in the yew tree's shadow. The man still dwells by the churchyard, forever in the dark embrace of the tree. At Christmas, the children of the village cut small branches to hang above their hearths. They wonder at the rich red berries gleaming in the candlelight and at the power and the danger they possess. And later, when all the candles are snuffed out, some say they hear weeping in the darkness. We already had one story about how holidays fight and battle in the collective unconscious, but what about when mythologies battle in history? You know, that's one reason I love this contest. Similar ideas can produce such vastly different results and moves. This time we get a glimpse into what might happen behind the scenes at the various councils and meetings when all the luminaries of Christmas get together and argue, especially in the aftermath. And just to clue everyone in, this one relies just a touch on old Scandinavian mythology. Some folk trace Santa back to Odin, the Allfather, or the Zeus-like-ish god of Old Norse legends who was always up for a good fight. And for Seti, who was kind of the god of justice and law and liked to try to keep things calm and peaceful. I'm sure I just pissed off some like Norse myth geeks with oversimplifying, but hey, I want everybody to have a little context. So here's War's End by Adam Gottfried. The intense gust heralded the opening of the longhouse door as the cloud of archaic Scandinavian profanity heralded the arrival of Santa Claus. Frisetti, the recumbent man within, leaned forward to pour a steaming glass of dark hot chocolate with mead and a candy cane garnish. Santa pushed the door closed and blinked against the dim firelight within. How did it go, Allfather? Frisetti asked, his voice tinged with a slight Minnesotan accent and a healthy dose of bemusement. The gray hood came off the head of the wild and bushy gray hair, and the old man squinted at his erstwhile companion with his single good eye. "'How the fuck do you think it went?' Santa exploded, stomped over to the table, as much to get the wintry mix off his boots as traverse the room, and drained the offered mug, resulting in a fairly good imitation of a gargoyle. "'What the fuck is this?' "'Christmas cheer,' Frisetti murmured. "'So you're saying that the intervention of Santa Claus and the Council of Jesus's... Jesi?' Informing white racist Jesus that he'd lost the war on Christmas went poorly? Santa winced. Why is your exposition always so fucking on the nose? We've smart readers and I only have 350 words. Out with it, Frisetti replied, effortlessly breaking the fourth wall. Santa only sighed and lowered his massive frame onto the bench. As suggested, we use the lingua franca available to us. English, Frisetti growled, but Santa ignored him. Naturally, evangelical Jesus, white racist Jesus, Frisetti quickly corrected, complained about the Blessed Virgin's accent and refused to even acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth. A Latina and a brown Middle Eastern guy? I'm shocked. But the icing on the cake was the fact that he referred to me as Saint Nicholas. Frisetti stared at him a moment. Sure, yes, that's the most egregious problem, he replied, dripping with irony. The silence grew between them as Frisetti poured another cup of Christmas cheer and handed it to Santa. So it went badly. Fuck you, Santa grumbled. Someone once told me that weird fiction is just confusing horror. I don't buy that overall, but there is a kernel of truth to it. Or maybe it's not outright horror, but more like 
suggested horror, dissociating horror, whatever. When done well, it's super effective. But when one thing is made weird over and over and over, it starts to seem normal. That's why I haven't picked too many Christmas morning stories about opening presents, because the last couple of years have already played out like a whole range of possibilities. When I got this one, though, I knew I'd have at least one on the show. Plus, kudos to the author for making this one even shorter than the 350-word limit and still doing a great job. I know most people tell me they're trying to cut words here and there, so that's hard. Here's Carton Holiday by Ibit Eye Overcomer. And this is read by L.W. Salinas, who stepped up at the last second when another friend couldn't do it. So, Sith Witch, as she goes on Twitter, thank you so, 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 so much. Mama said a carton was the best place to hide secrets. No one would suspect a warm, fluffy box, brown to the color of caramel and human skin. Yesterday was Christmas, so we played a game of cartons to see which of us had the scariest secrets. Mama said games like that should only be played on Halloween, but we thought we'd do something different than eating chicken and burnt jollof. Everyone hid their cartons in different corners of the house, waiting till secrets spilled over. Five kids open to the world of mysteries. Annika had raggy Santa costumes in her carton. The cap was redder than usual, and there were bits of bone, too, with slinky high heels. Monisola had a set of pliers in her carton. They looked like dog teeth, and there was human teeth hanging on their ends, too. Fian's carton was empty, but it smelt of polish, like someone walked into it with new shoes and never walked out of it. My carton was rattling, the way a chicken rattled to the rhythm of its slaughtered head. It felt like there was a junk of things inside trying to escape. Clothes, shoes, legs, kidneys, and fingers. After some minutes, the rattle died down, like a tired bell. We looked at each other. Four kids, open to the world of mysteries. You know how they always say the first line of a story is the most important? I think this next story masters and embodies that principle better than any other I read this year. And that's all I'm going to say about it. It's enough. Oh, except that Mrs. Kringle graciously offered her extensive talents and beautiful voice to read this one. Here's Christmas Spirits by Lori Peterson. I get drunk as always Christmas Eve. My mother's the first one to climb out of me at midnight, naked as usual. This is why my kids have to be asleep by ten. Sure, I wish they could meet their grandmother, but I don't want to explain why she's younger than I am. At 18, she looks as she looked when I was born. She died in childbirth. She finds jeans and t-shirts heaped on the chair, and before mom puts them on, her mother, my grandmother, climbs out of her, also naked. She, too, roots through the pile looking for the really short pair of jeans. Then they grab paper and tape and start wrapping presents the kids' dads have left. 
I am a single mother of seven, each kid from something that didn't work out. The dads help when they think of it. Still, it's a lot of work for me. The Christmas Eve I was so sick with the flu was when my mother showed up, like a delirium, reverse birth, and got everything ready for the next day. A year later, she came back and brought her mother. The year after, my grandmother brought my great-grandmother. All of them are the ages they were when they had their daughters in my direct line. This morning, I meet my great-great-great-Katrine, 1846. She's not much help yet because her daughter, Anouk, 1871, has to spend so much time explaining to her in Dutch why they're here. But by four, presents are wrapped, food is cooked, and we are all shit-faced, laughing like hyenas, watching viral videos on YouTube. Five is the witching hour, though. One by one, they absorb back into each other, like Russian nesting dolls, until it's me, alone, stinging from all those re-entries, waiting for the first kid to wake up, hoping I won't have a hangover again for Christmas. Okay, sometimes you get a story that's just dumb funny. Some of my friend readers were like, really? When I insisted that the story had to be on the show, but I don't care. This one makes me laugh. It's my level of humor. Get ready for Piss Pistol by Brandon Case. Tim ran toward his daughter's scream, stumbling down the hall and wiping sleep from his eyes. A fat figure in red stood beside the living room fire, Greasy white hair spilling down his stained outfit. Yo ho ho, and a bottle of fucking eggnog. Santa belched and adjusted his eye patch with a hooked prosthetic. Tim pulled his daughter behind him. Don't worry, Sarah, that's not really Santa, just a homeless man pretending. Not really Santa, eh, Timmy? He stamped forward peg-leg thumping against the hardwood floor. Or should I call you Piss Pistol, the boy whose anxious bladder wet most of his sixth-grade class when a little Susie pantsed him. How could you know? Santa scoffed. Mrs. Claus campaigned for you not to get coal, despite your pissy pecker giving poor Susie nightmares for a year. The stench of alcohol and stale sweat rolled off the man in waves. Sarah clung to Tim's gray sweatpants, trembling. You're just some drunk who heard an embarrassing story. Get out of my house. Santa lunged pinning Tim against the wall with his hook. Sarah yelped and scurried toward the door, but a fat fist grabbed her hair. Mrs. Claus took the best parts of me when she died. Fucking bitch and her axe. Now I'm free to restore the naughty list and distribute every lump of coal spared by her disgusting generosity. And this time, you're the stockings. Sarah whimpered. Tim panicked at the thought of Santa forcing a lump of coal down his daughter's throat. He flailed, 
but Santa held him with the strength of a man that carried a billion present sack. There was only one option. Tim's toes grabbed the leg of his sweatpants and tugged. Piss Pistol shot a yellow stream at Santa. The fat man recoiled, dropping Sarah to wipe away the urine. You just earned yourself another lump of coal, Timmy. Run, Tim gasped. Sarah fled into the night. Tim grinned, briefly, before Santa brought out a bag of fist-sized lumps and pried his jaws open. Most of the stories this year are fantasy, horror, supernatural, mythical, whatever. And granted, it's easier to do strange by breaking real-world rules. But sometimes, call it what you will, the human condition, the indignity of mundane existence, just having to goddamn endure is really weird. And that's what this next story attacks head-on. From Jonathan Saint, here's Grandpa. Come on, Grandpa. The movie's starting. Mum says to come. He won't move, Mum. There are empty places. Gravy-smeared plates, cracker carnage, empty wine glasses, spinning angels tinkle over low candles. He feels a burning in his chest, below his throat, picks up a tall glass, sips. It is warm but sharp, then soothing. He drains it and the burning recedes. Leans forward, fizzing gas and a thin stream bursts from his mouth. Grandpa! Mum says you have to come. Who are you? Stop it, Grandpa. He stands slowly, pushing back his chair with his knees, two hands on the table. A thick white napkin swings forward from under his chin and knocks the glass over. The child pulls at his arm. I'm coming. Leans on the table, wipes his lips and moustache with the back of his hand. Small feet scamper away. He sits back down. Picks up the napkin in two hands. Wipes his itchy brow. Napkin comes away red, but only from shreds of paper hat. Angels spin. Ting, ting, ting. He reaches forward, stops the angels. Picks one up between thumb and forefinger lifts it off the frame. The other three angels lurch and do not move. He closes one eye and peers at the angel in his fingers. Who the fuck are you? The angel does not speak. What are you? Leo, are you coming? Everyone should be together. The fire is on and we have your chair ready. Come on, please, Leo. Who are you? Leo, come on, everyone's waiting. I'll be down just now. Here, I'll help you. You won't fucking help me. I'll be down. Now would you just piss off? Footsteps out of the kitchen. Reaches for a glass, warm and smooth. Looks again at the angel, head on an angle, bent now. What? Dad, you can't talk to Jen like that. Stop being a prick and come down. The kids want you there. Fuck knows why. Get up, you tired old bastard. That's better. Good. Bends the angel head back and it snaps off. 
Jesus, you're a disgrace. Angel, that's what. We come now to the four winners. And I want to remind everyone that even though I set it up as a contest, that's really just an excuse to read and publish a whole bunch of stories and encourage people to submit. I think of these all as just one big anthologies, but to do that, I'll need to be able to pay everyone at higher levels, like I said. So before we read the final stories, I'm going to pitch one more time that if you enjoy all of these, especially if you've enjoyed them for more than one year, making a donation at ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas is probably the easiest way to help me fund the prizes. My first year, I gave out $75 in money total. This year, I'm giving out over 320-ish, I think, in prizes, and that's due entirely to donations and Patreon supporters. If I can give more and more every year until this little event just pays everyone as much as first prize, I'll be a happy Kringle, or at least become a financially respectable market. So please, for the sake of all these wonderful writers who are just taking a crack at coming up with some holiday weirdness for all of our benefit, please consider chipping in so I can make this bigger and better every year. They're groveling over to the stories. We're also going to begin, strangely enough, where we began this whole show, with a weird card story. And we're also going to begin with the same writer. Now, this is something I've never done before. Loads of people submit multiple stories each year. And I've had a few times where one person submitted more than one that I thought was, was great. But in the past, it always felt a bit cheaty somehow to give one person two spots. But you may have noticed I've got way more stories this year than the last years, so there's a little more wiggle room, but also I've never had a situation before where I literally could not choose between two of one writer's stories. Michelle Cristoforo submitted four, in fact, all based on weird cards, and I'll admit I liked them all. But two, two were impossible for me to choose between. They were so good that none of my readers and I could agree on which one we should include, so I compromised by just breaking my own rule. But I wouldn't do this for any story. I did it because I knew that one of these would probably be the winner of the category when all is said and done, and sure enough, everyone else at least agreed with that. Okay, so for the card. Remember, it's up on the show notes, but here's what to imagine. It's a Krampus card, but it's a lady Krampus card. There actually are a ton of old cards in German and other languages that show a female version of Krampus. Sort of. She's rarely like a full-on demon. Most of them are like this card, where they take a cute young woman with a sweet winning smile and slap some horns on her. But in this case, they went a little further. She's also got the long red tongue hanging down to her chest. She's wearing chains across her wrist and carrying a bundle of switches. Her dress, for some reason, has these three like puffy pom-pom things and a line down like front buttons, uh, but they're red, so they kind of fit the vibe. And she also has the traditional Krampus basket on her back, except this time, instead of naughty children, we've got two grown men. Tiny grown men, sure, but men, not children. Top hat, monocle, dour expressions and all. And in the background, you see what I presume are the fires of hell. So here's Michelle Cristoforo's weird card category winning story, If the Suit Fits. Eleanor slapped butter on the guinea fowl, serves one, ready for the oven next morning. A fancy dress party on Christmas Eve, as if the daily humiliation of life as a PA at Spencer's wasn't bad enough. 
Now she must spend the whole evening with those wankers as well. Thank God for the pop-up Christmas market she'd passed on her trudge home from the station. And the sexy Krampus costume the crooked old stall holder had pressed into her hands as it began to snow. When Eleanor tried on the dress, it moulded seamlessly to her skin. The horns just melded into place, as did the serpent-like tongue now fizzing at her lips. The bushy birch switch trembled in her grasp. The blood-red pom-pom screamed like a child when pressed. The only thing she wasn't sure about was the basket of mansplainers strapped to her back. Show your pass to the driver, said one on the bus there. Mixing red wine with white can worsen a hangover, said the other, as Justin poured her a Merlot on their arrival. He'd love to squeeze your pom-poms, trilled the mansplainers. Go on, Eleanor found her fizzing tongue saying. Justin stared but gave them a honk. The pom-pom shrieks made everyone cower. Everyone, that is, but Eleanor and her basket companions. Give them a switch tickle, they said. So Eleanor whipped them all. Jane for hogging the credit for the team project. Justin for spilling the details of their drunken fumble. Connor for always saying going forward and low-hanging fruit. Everyone else because she could. Soon, all her colleagues lay writhing on the ground, masks askew, beards askance, legs akimbo. Take what you like, the mansplainers said. So Eleanor helped herself. Emeralds from ears, watches from wrists, why fronts from Justin? Don't ask. She tossed her spoils into the basket and disappeared into the night. Now you know what it's like to wield the confidence of an ordinary middle-class white man, said the mansplainers. Eleanor emptied them onto the ground. Indeed, you can walk from here. They gaped up at her. Smile, she said, boots crunching into the snow. Next comes the winner for the category that had to begin with, There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. This story is by a name that might be familiar since Dan Fields showed up in two of my other shows. He's just got away with images that I admit I adore, and so there's a touch of favoritism here, but, you know, he earned it. Luckily, though, my other readers confirm my feelings about this one. So this is the first time he's ever won, and part of the reason for that is that he took the churchyard premise in a totally different direction than most. It's understandable how this mysterious man by a churchyard would be the focus of the story. But what if instead you told a story about the churchyard and did some other cool things too? So here's A Churchyard Carol by Dan Fields. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. It soothed him seeing the dead planted, outliving the sick and miserable eased his own sick misery. From his garret window, he watched the burials of many whom his cruelty and low morals had touched in the town streets. Midnight strolls among headstones and around a stately central crypt lifted his spirits with morbid energy as autumn waned. 
He blessed the place for every day he was free to leave it. He needed no church. Grave soil infused with maudlin prayers was temple enough and gladly received his pleasantries. A great snowfall on the Feast of Conception worked a queer illusion. He fancied that the churchyard wall now lay twenty paces nearer his house than he knew it to be. By the third Advent Sunday, he'd have sworn he could spit from his window upon the wall or strike the rich marble sepulchre with a stone. The bells of Christmas Day, curiously muffled, awakened him to a strange, constricted bedstead and the dusty, mold scent of airless quarters. He'd never entered the mausoleum, nor seen the lacquered coffin on its granite plinth inside, yet he recognized his environs with no clue how he'd been overtaken and sealed in. Sealed in, and he realized as a shadow moved to meet him, not alone. He might have been heard, shrieking and clawing for escape, had not so many jubilant voices in the church been raised to greet the blessed morning. On St. Stephen's Day, a sexton came to tend the grounds. Although perceiving no shift in geography, the laborer fell dizzy with a haunted impression that a ramshackle garreted house had stood there not long ago. Yet there sat only a nameless marble vault from which all noise had ceased. A man had dwelt by a churchyard as its fondest neighbor, visiting more often and with gladder heart than other callers. Never did he reflect that a churchyard might also dwell by a man or take a notion one Christmas to repay his goodwill. It was no time of year to die, friendless in the cold. The stocking stuffer category could just be anything. So obviously this had the most competition simply by sheer numbers. I think I had maybe 25 or 30 entries in the other two categories, but the other 400-ish were all over the place. So when it came to choosing a winner here, all bets were off. I was just going for weird. What story took Christmas or winter holidays in a direction I'd never thought of before? What kind of freaked me out, kind of made me smile, but also left me a little bit uncomfortable? Now, all the stories you've heard do that in one way or another, but this one just went in so many different directions with so many wonderful questions and possibilities that I should just shut up and let you hear it. So here's the stocking stuffer category winner called The Power of Presence and Spider Silk by Daniel Osima. Santa, the jolly old frog, croaks his delight at the shiny new swamp sleigh. Candy red with green trim, just as he ordered, decorated green for the blood of his defeated enemies, the lizards, and red for the smiles of the human children when they find the wrapped gifts he will give them, for their mouths opening in shock when they unwrap them. He waves thanks to the robins who brought it. Santa climbs in, tests its reins, his toe pads suction perfectly to the material. On, Slither, he calls. On, Spitter. The team of eels pulls the sleigh smoothly into water that would soon be cleansed. Almost ready. Santa croaks to make a bullfrog jealous, and spiders skitter to the sleigh to load it with innocent-looking gifts. His mouth open, Santa smells the contents of the presents. Not too ripe yet. He closes his mouth. With the last bag loaded, Santa sets off. 
The sleigh glides smoothly through the swamp. No snakes raise their hoods to stop them. No clumps of muck slow them down. The magic of the sleigh carries them. At the houses of the children, Santa hops inside. Some have service doors for milk deliveries. Some have mail slots that widen to let him pass. Some have entrances only frogs know of. He leaves the scattered children of the swamp their gifts and returns to his shiny new sleigh. Back home, his spider workers gather to greet him. Thank you for your work. Take all the silk you like and be free. Inside, he greets his wife. It's done. The children will open their presents and find the lizard carcasses, scattered, away from his home where their enmity had cursed the waters, away from any chance of them coming back to life. What if they bring the skeletons together again, love? Might they summon the green lizards back from death? Unlikely. Humans are not known for sharing, and yet, is he sure it could never happen? Then we will fight them again, my love, against the powers of presence and spider silk, they won't last for long. Most kids dive in for that biggest present first. Or when you're older, you narrow in on what you're pretty sure is that special something you've wanted for a long time. Not me. I like to keep those special things for last. Keep the suspense going. Make it so there's still more to keep looking forward to as long as you can. And that's why I always put the winners at the end. Now, Like I said at the beginning, I can't guarantee that everyone will think my winner is the best story of the lot. I mean, if I did, why call this stuff weird? And I'm going to admit that this year's winner was not the consensus winner among all my different readers. The decision had to come down by fiat. So for every story that didn't win, know that you probably had a, a champion out there pushing for you. But it's my contest, my website, my podcast, my taste, my weird that makes the decision. And I really liked how I couldn't quite place what was going on with the story at first. I didn't really know what even the story was. I mean, I mean, I got it, I, but I didn't get it. The writer kind of admitted to me in an email that she didn't either, wondering if it was just gibbering lunacy. But it hung with me, and I tried to figure it out, figure out the context, figure out where the real disturbing feeling I got came from, but how it was also somehow cozy. So I'm still not quite sure I know, and I think in the end, that's why I knew it had to be the winner. So here is the 2021 contest winning story, The Fight, by Elizabeth Gilt. Oh, and for the benefit of American listeners like me, she included a little note I should read first. I am rather too late, a bit worried that it won't make all that much sense to non-UK folks. I mean, it may not make much sense anyway. However, the important fact is that a UK Christmas dinner is a sad and incomplete Christmas dinner if it doesn't involve pigs in blankets. Wikipedia tells me America has its own pig in blanket situation, but ours are different. Small chipolata sausages wrapped in streaky bacon and baked in the oven. Apologies if I've got it wrong, and that was all immediately obvious. Now, since I'm one of those Americans who knows pigs in blankets as little croissanty things that don't have much to do with Christmas, it was not immediately obvious, so thank you still doesn't make this story any easier to cook. Mia unpacked her rucksack, laying everything out on the countertop. The cool, wet summer had provided perfect weather for the giant turkey fruit. The greengrocer had even split it and scooped out all the pips. All she had to do was stuff it and pop it in the oven. Next to it were bags of potatoes, carrots, parsnips, Brussels sprouts... Onions for the stuffing and cranberries for the sauce. Surely that would do for Christmas dinner, she tried to tell herself. That would be fine. 
she groaned. It would not be fine. Mia pulled the steel boxes from the cupboard and headed out again. A dozen chipolatas and a dozen rashes of streaky, please. A dozen? Big family. The man shook his head. You're a brave woman. He pulled on his chainmail gauntlet and slid open a metal hatch. Inside, the sausages seethed and twisted. He grabbed a handful, rammed them into one of Mia's boxes and began to fasten the lid. A blunt, pink end quested out through the gap and he wrapped it sharply. Get back in, you! He slapped the box down. I think that's twelve. The little buggers won't stay still. He headed out the back with her other box and Mia winced at the shrill screaming. When he came back, pale and sweating, she paid him and hurried home. Shaking, Mia put on thick gloves and took a deep breath. She put a sausage, flopping and writhing, onto a plate and cautiously pulled out a rasher of bacon. It reared up, hissing and shrieking. She gripped it with the tongs, trying to pin down one end of the squirming chipolata. The bad summer had started just as the bacons fledged, and they were fierce this year. She smacked the rasher down, but it lashed out, leaving an angry red rhinesting along the inside of her wrist. Oi! She smashed the bacon with the tongs, slapped it round the sausage and impaled the whole lot with a cocktail stick. It quivered and whined as she dropped it onto the plate. One down, eleven to go. I hope you all had as much fun as I did. If you're a winner, please check your email again because we got to figure out how to get you the prize money. If you made it on the show, I beg you to submit again next year. If your story didn't make it on the show, I implore you to send in another one next year. Though I obviously do take repeaters, I try to limit myself, so there's always more spots for new folk than old. And if you think maybe you've got an idea for something, keep your eyes peeled, because I'll announce the next contest over the summer. And yeah, please do not send it to me now, because I promise, promise, promise I will lose it. Also, if you enjoyed someone's story here, please, please go check out their bio on weirdchristmas.com. Follow up with something else they wrote, especially something you can buy. We got a range here of folk who publish multiple novels, to self-published books, to magazines and journals, online, print, free subscription. But the more you can support writers you like with cash, in addition to retweets and shares, the more they can write, the more they can eat, and the more we can read. So please support them in any way you can if their story or poem brought you a chuckle or a shiver or, you know, makes you more kind of wary around Christmas decorations. Thanks to my friends Lisa, L.W. Salinas, and Mrs. Kringle for reading stories. And kudos to so many authors wanting to read their own stuff this year. Usually it's kind of more half and half. So to have most folk offer to read their own was awesome and meant less work for me lining up volunteers. Thank you, as always, to my friends Joel, James, Benito, Lisa, Glenn, that one weirdo who didn't want their name said out loud, and Mrs. Kringle for helping me narrow down the submissions. But most of all, a huge, huge thank you to everyone listening and reading throughout the year. Like I said, I've still got more episodes to come this year, and sorry for being late. But as Kilgore Trout says, so it goes. Just means that Christmas is going to last a little bit longer this year. So, until next time, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. <laughs>